0: Good morning. I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. If you're visiting with us this week, welcome. We're glad to have you with us. We're in a series on the book of Revelation, actually looking at the first three chapters of Revelation and the seven letters that Jesus sent to the seven churches of Asia Minor in what is now modern day Turkey. And these letters, in each of these Jesus addresses his church and talks about what, what, what is good and what is strong as appropriate and also what is in need of change and We look at these letters because they tell us much about what it means to be the church, what it means for us to be the church. This morning we come to the letter to the church in Sardis. This is chapter 3 of Revelation, verses 1 through 6. You'll find that on page 1029 if you're using one of the Pew Bibles. Or if you have another one, it's in the last book of your Bible. Let me pray for us, and we'll dive right in. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you this morning, um, and, and here we come to you opening your word which you say is your word, and by it you mean to speak to us. So would you do that? Would you open our ears and open our hearts that we might hear you and really be changed? Would you meet us where we need to be met? We ask this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." This is the word of the Lord, and it's given to us for our good and for His glory. <clears throat> in, uh, in 2006, um, the PBS show, Antique, Antique Roadshow, some of you will have seen, they went to Honolulu, Hawaii, great assignment, and uh, they opened their doors, if you've seen the show, for people in the area to come and bring in all the junk out of their attic that they wonder if it's. always wondered if it was worth anything, and they bring it in, they have professional appraisers tell them what it's actually worth. And one of the guys who came in on this particular date was a, a guy named Kevin. He walks in, and he comes in with a linen napkin. And uh, on this napkin are, uh, are written, kind of drawn, the, the kind of just the vaguest outline of three butterflies and a signature that says Andy Warhol down at the bottom. And he tells the story. He says, uh, a number of years ago, a friend of mine who's an artist uh, needed 1,500 bucks, and so he gave me this as collateral for the loan. And he never repaid the loan, so he still had the napkin. Uh, and his friend told him this story. He said that this belonged, I don't know how the friend got it, but he said, you know, this came from a, a 1983 dinner party that was hosted by Diane Vreeland, who was a fashion columnist and editor, and she was a friend of Andy Warhol. So she hosted this party, and Andy Warhol reputedly uh, made this little drawing in, at the party, and somehow this guy had gotten uh, a hold of it. And so the, the art appraiser here for Antique Roadshow, she said, okay, if, if this is genuine, then it could bring anywhere from twenty to $30,000 at auction, which is not a bad return on a $1,500 loan. Um, and, but she said, you know, but if, it, if it's not... Then this is worth about 50 bucks, and you got a great story. Uh, and, and she said, "But but here's the thing, I can't actually tell you if it's the real thing or not." She said, "In fact, there's only one place that can. There is an Andy Warhol Foundation in New York City, and they have an authentication board that meets three times a year." She said, "Anytime a new work appears that is reputedly done by Andy Warhol, until they review it and put their stamp of approval on it, all you've got to dinner napkin." And so if they don't say it's real, that's what all the auction houses look to for authentication, and, it, and it, it's not worth anything to you. So uh, Kevin gets uh, this story, and he finds out what he needs to do to find out if this is real, because that is the issue for this guy, Kevin. And then you know, is this napkin? Is it, is it real? Is it genuine? Is it the real thing? Is it a real warhol? Well, that's uh, actually the same issue that comes up in our passage this morning. This idea of whether or not something is real and genuine. And Jesus is bringing up this issue with this church in Sardis to ask them this question. Are you a real church? Are you a genuine church? Are you what you claim to be? And so our, our point this morning from this passage is simply that we are called to be a genuine church. And so to see that, we're going to look at three things. The loss of a genuine church... The mark of a genuine church and the recovery of a genuine church. Okay, first the loss of a genuine church. Each of these seven letters written to these seven churches um, is addressed to their specific conditions but also addressed... Uh, As a part of Scripture to all of us as Christ Church, the bigger church. But in these seven letters, all but two of them have something in which Jesus commends the congregation for their faithful service. Okay, so five out of the seven have those. There are two letters that have no commendation at all, and this is one of them. Jesus launches directly into his critique of them. Look what he says in verse one. He says, "I know your works." Verse 2 They are incomplete in God's sight. Okay, that's what he comes firing over their bow. I know your works, and they are incomplete. And for many of us, maybe when you hear that word works, it it, it sparks some thoughts like, well, you know, I thought we were saved apart from our works, apart from any good thing that we can do. And and scripture certainly teaches that. The way Jesus in this letter is using the word works is the same way uh, that, that Jesus often speaks and other writers of scripture speak about this very same idea using a metaphor, the metaphor of fruit, when Jesus talks about living a fruitful life. It doesn't say that we are saved by our fruit, but he says those who are saved, those who come to know him, those who have God's life implanted in them will bear good and beautiful fruit. And it's the same idea here. He says, you know, if you were my people, you would be bearing fruit. You would be bearing good works that give testimony to the reality, the genuineness of who you are as a church. But Jesus looks at this church in Sardis and he says, nothing is complete, That uh, nothing is growing and thriving as it should now, maybe this incompleteness means literally they just never finish anything. Maybe they have great plans for God and they just don't have the wherewithal to actually go, you know, follow through with the great things that they try. Or maybe in one way or another they have lost their vision for following Christ in the city of Sardis. Maybe they've lost their awareness of Christ's call on their lives to bring the gospel to the world around them, including to their city of Sardis. And the result for these people is an image he gives us in verse 4. He says that, that you, have, you have clothes that have been soiled, that there is something inappropriate in the way you are dressed before me because you are not real and genuine the way I am calling you to be. Have you ever gone to an event and realized as you walked into the door that you were, you were drastically underdressed <laughs> for the event that you're supposed to You know, everybody's got a tie and a jacket on and you've got your polo shirt or whatever the... Uh, It might have been for you. You know, that's the kind of picture that we get here, that there's this great banquet that is being laid. There's this great event of uh, God's people before him in the presence of heaven. And he says, your garments are soiled. You come in with hair disheveled. You are a mess. Jesus pronounces this verdict on them. He says, you are not what you seem to be to the world around you. He says this in verse 1, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. He says there's no reality here. You are not genuine. You have a reputation without the reality. Uh, Maybe you might remember, as I do, being a child on Easter morning, being given one of those big chocolate Easter bunnies that has the colorful foil and stuff on it. You rip the foil off and then you you bite into the ear and realize that it's hollow. <laughs> and you think, I've been robbed. <laughs> because as a little kid, you think I've got this huge chunk of chocolate and it only goes that deep, and then there's nothing inside. It's not real. It's not genuine. It's not what I expected. And the church is a big chocolate bunny. Um, <laughs> No, but what does Jesus say to him? He's, it, it, it is like that feeling of you are expecting one thing. It appears to be one thing. And when you get inside, you find out it is something else entirely. That it is not real and it is not genuine. And he's saying that to this church in Sardis. You have the appearance of the real thing, but not the reality. John Stott put it this way. It is form without prayer. Reputation without reality. Outward appearance without inward integrity. Without a show without life. And you know what we call that. We have an expression for that, a dead church. We use that. But here's the sobering thing in the letter to this church in Sardis. This church is dead, and they don't even know it. And even worse than that, it is dead, and the world around them doesn't even know it yet. Right? They have a reputation for being alive. It is dead, and Jesus knows it. And he comes and tells the church the reality of their existence. He's basically coming to them and saying, "Look, in this hollowness, you are hypocrites." I mean, you've heard that criticism leveled against the church. Maybe you've leveled it yourself. You know, the church is full of a bunch of hypocrites. And there's uh, a couple different responses you can give to that. You know, one being simply, um, "It it is," and thankfully, there's there's room enough for you to come and join us. Um, and that's true. And Maybe a little bit too glib, but maybe another response would be this, to really hear the weight of that criticism and know that much of it really does ring true. In fact, Jesus himself had a similar criticism of his people, the church of his day, that he also thought it was hypocritical Um, he used that word himself comes from a Greek word means an actor and as far as we can tell from ancient literature Jesus is the first one to actually use it in this sense that hypocrite is someone who is play acting who is pretending to be one thing and actually the reality is very different Jesus uses that term when he speaks in the scriptures and one of the places he does that uh, most often is when he is speaking against the Pharisees who were the religious leaders of the day who were supposed to be the real thing leading God's people leading them in love for him. But instead, they were a bunch of hypocrites. He uh, uses this in Matthew 23, for example, in in a long dialogue or monologue, really, against the Pharisees. And six times in that monologue, he calls them hypocrites. Here's just one little snippet of it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. He says to the Pharisees, you are hypocrites. And that is what he is saying to the church in Sardis as well. He's leveling the same criticism at them. To these Christians who have become hypocrites, who no longer have a genuine church, no longer have a genuine faith. The loss of a genuine church. He says their works are incomplete, So why? What works are they that are incomplete? Why the soiled clothes? What is it that they have compromised in their genuineness? In what way are they dead even though they appear to be alive? Notice that Jesus actually doesn't specifically say here. Now, he does in other letters. He mentions very specific things. Uh, Here he doesn't say, you tolerate that woman Jezebel, as he did last week to Thyatira. Or he doesn't say, you know, you eat food sacrificed to idols, or you have some who follow the Nicolaitans. Instead, he leaves it somewhat ambiguous, and it invites us, I think, to ask this uh, really foundational question. And this is the second point: What is the mark of a genuine church? What does really make a church a the real thing, a real genuine church in God's sight? And different people have tried to answer this in different ways. Um, Some of you I know are familiar with a pastor named Mark Deaver, who wrote a book, a helpful book called Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. And let let me just read these to you quickly. Here are the nine marks, he says, of a healthy church. Expositional preaching, biblical theology, a biblical understanding of the good news, a biblical understanding of conversion, biblical understanding of evangelism, biblical church membership, biblical church discipline, biblical discipleship and growth, biblical biblical church leadership. All helpful things. Uh, The ancient church, uh, look to four specific things as the mark of a genuine church. And these go back as far as the Nicene Creed, and those four marks are these, that the church is one, that it is holy, that it is Catholic in the sense of being universal, and that it is apostolic, that it holds to the teaching of the apostles. After them, the reformers uh, took those four marks, and, and they called them attributes of the church instead and held on to them. But they said, here are the three marks of the church, the true preaching of the gospel, the right administration of the sacraments, and the exercise of church discipline. Okay, why why the history lesson? Simply to say this, that from the very beginning, this is a question the church has wrestled with. What does it mean to be real and genuine? And you can see how important that question is because Jesus is talking to this church and saying, you are not genuine, you are dead, you're on the verge of disappearing. And so this question matters. Well, let me uh, give us uh, just a working definition for the mark of a true, a true church this morning. One way of looking at it. A biblical summation of what makes a true church. And I would say that it's simply this. It's love. That's what makes a true church. Jesus put it this way. When somebody said can you sum up the law for us. He said this. He said yeah you, can, you are to love the Lord your God. With all your heart and your mind. And your soul and your strength. And you're to love your neighbor as yourself. He said all the commandments are summed up in these. It's the same idea that Paul puts his finger on in 1 Corinthians 13. What's known to us as the love chapter. It's the one you hear read at weddings, uh, which is appropriate, but it really wasn't written for weddings. It was written for a church that was trying to learn how to get along. And here's what he says at the beginning of this. In chapter 13, he says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and deliver my body up to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. If Paul were using the words of Revelation, he might say, If I can do all these things yet have not love, then I'm dead and empty and not the real and genuine thing. That the mark of the true church is love. And I'm going to look at it this morning from from three directions that the church talks about, the directions of our love. That we are to be a people who are marked by love for God, and for love for others, and for love for the world. And as we just look at these three things briefly, ask, ask yourself this question. Where are you lacking love? Where do you have more reputation than reality? And where as a church are we lacking love? And where does our church have more reputation than reality? First of these is love for God. And we looked at this uh, more in depth a number of weeks ago with the very first letter that came to the church in Ephesus. This is Jesus' very sobering assessment of their life as a church. He said, you do all kinds of great things. He gives them this great praise. And then he says, but I have this against you. You have lost your first love. It says to them, you are so busy doing these things, but you have lost what is foundational, a response of love to me, a response of love that is brought out by my love for you. You have lost your first love. It is the most central of these loves. It's what connects the others together, but one that can so easily slip away. And in many ways, one that can slip away seemingly without notice. And in many ways, maybe this love for God is the one that's easiest to fake, at least to the world around us. Boy, look at the rapture on their face when they sing that song. But look at how many Bible studies they go to. Look at all those things, those outward forms can be there without the reality, without the genuineness. And that is true, it's true for all of us. I, I was struck this week reading this comment by John Stopp. He said, pastors are particularly vulnerable. We can lead a service with little awareness of the greatness of God we are professing to worship. We can preach rather to display our learning or eloquence than to exalt Christ and minister to the people. But all Christian activity, if it is an expression of love, but all Christian activity, if it is not an expression of love for God or others, is a hollow mockery and an empty pantomime. And you hear what he says? We can be doing all kinds of good stuff, all of us can be, and yet be lacking love. And so one of the marks of a true church is that we are people who love God, who love God. Second thing we're called to is that we're called to love each other. Jesus thought this was, that this point was so foundational that he picked it as one of the things to emphasize with his disciples the night before he was crucified. It's what he said to them in John chapter 13. Listen to some of his last words before his crucifixion. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Did you hear the weight of what he just said? That a sign to the world of the genuineness of our faith, of the genuineness of our church, is our love for each other. Right here in this church, our love for other Christians is a display, a billboard that tells the world around us whether or not we are the real thing. Now, do you look around this church and realize that maybe you've held yourself aloof from others, that you haven't really invested relationally with people here? Why not? Are you listening to God's call to love one another here? Or how about this? Are there unresolved relational breaks between you and someone else in this church? Is there simmering anger? Is there misunderstanding? Is there resentment? Anyone here who was a friend a year ago, but now you barely speak. What happened? What has blocked the call to love in your life? Yesterday on the radio, uh, Scott Simon interviewed Pat Conroy, author about his new book called My Reading Life. Towards the end of the interview, he, uh, Scott Simon asked Conroy about the dedication on the first page of the book And and here's what he says. He says, you say this book is, quote, dedicated to my lost daughter, Susanna Ansley Conroy. May I ask what the story is? Conroy says, yes. He says, I got divorced from Susanna's mother. I think it happened in 1995 that it was final. And since that time, I've seen Susanna, I think, three weeks. I think she was 10 years old when this all, you know, when it all began happening. But I've seen her three weeks. It was all court-ordered. But in California it has an interesting law where there comes a time and it's pretty early where the kids can say she does not want to see you at all. And Susanna evidently made that decision and Scott she has a perfect right not to see me. You know she's 28 now. But I thought this was going to be, but I thought this was going to be the last cry of the heart. I'd at least try to get her attention and see if I could get her to come back. And it's been one of the most soul-killing things that's ever happened to me. I'm delighted you mentioned it because I've simply run out of ways to try to figure it out. I don't want to, you know, when I go, I don't want to go to her door and knock it down or do anything like that. But, you know, this was a way. And Simon says, you, boy, you sell millions of books all around the world. And Conroy said, and I can't talk to my kid. You see, the world knows, we all know, the power of relational brokenness. It is all around us and shot through life for many of us. It is right there on the surface for everyone. And Jesus is telling his people, he says, one of the marks that people are going to know that this gospel is real, that I am who I say I am, that I came to make this life whole again, that I came to renew your life, that I came to save you, is that this kind of fracture and brokenness will be put back together again in a community of my people. That there will be real relational Resolution and healing and re-knitting of old wounds. Healing that we can't find anywhere else. Our ability to love each other, to give ourselves for the good of each other, to reconcile when we wrong each other. These are evidence and testimony to the world of our genuineness, not our hypocrisy. The genuineness not only of our individual faith or even our church, but of Christianity itself. You see, we're called to love, to love God, and to love each other. And thirdly, we're called to love the world. That we're called to invest ourselves in mission and evangelism and mercy, not only on the other side of the world, but also right here, in our own place of Williamsburg. Our adult education class right now is going through a series by Tim Keller, a material called uh, Gospel in Life, and uh, makes this comment in the class. It says... um, A deep social conscience and a life poured out in deeds of service to others, and especially to the poor, is the inevitable sign of real faith and a real relationship with God. You hear what he's saying. This kind of love marks us as genuine. One of the commentators on this passage uh, that we're reading this morning said, Jesus could be saying that for all the church's great programming, that we are not doing the one great deed that they or any church is supposed to be doing, that for all their beehive of spirituality, they were not doing evangelism. After all, lampstands exist for one reason, to give light, to burn in the darkness. Not complete means not doing the one thing I've called you to do in the city, to make disciples. Is there evidence enough to convict us as a church of loving our city and loving our neighbors? we are called into this experience of mission together, this love of mission, that we would bring others, that we would pray, that we would look for opportunities to bring the hope of the gospel to those around us. When was the last time you thought to yourself, who can I share the gospel with? Who can I bring the hope of life to? Who could I invite possibly to come be a part of our small group that they might get to know a group of Christians and see love lived out? Who, who do I know that might actually be able to come to a service at our church and that that would actually be something that would open their ears and their eyes? Are you praying for this? Are you praying for conversations with non-believers? When Elizabeth and I were, uh, prior to coming to Williamsburg, we were in Philadelphia and we were uh, members of a church plant. And there at the very beginning of this church, if you've ever been a part of planning a church, you know that mission is front and center. That your church doesn't exist yet, and you want to see the gospel go out and change people's lives and actually build a church. And so we were very much praying and had our eyes open. Now, I remember the experience of walking around the streets of this one area of Philadelphia that, where this church was going to be planted with one of the guys who was one of the pastors. And this guy was remarkable. We were walking through the street, and this is no exaggeration, and random people would just like walk out of storefronts and buildings and come and start talking to him, people that he didn't know. And I'm walking along with him going, how does this? This never happens to me. Uh, But it happened to him all the time, and he got in these conversations getting to know people in the city and caring for them. And one of the things that struck me is that never happens to me, and so I'm going to have to be one of those people that really prays that God would give me opportunity, that he would open the doors for me. I can remember... A few years ago, when Elizabeth and I started to pray more seriously for our neighborhood here in town, and began to see some of the fruit of that, praying for our neighbors around us. In the day that uh, one of our neighbors came across the street, knocked on the door, <clears throat> we got in a conversation, he said, um, I don't know if this is something you'd do, but I'm, I'm really interested in, I don't really know the Bible very well, and I'm sort of interested to hear what it says. Like, could we read that together and, like, talk about it? Uh, is that the kind of thing that you'd do? Uh <laughs> I assured him that I'd be able to squeeze that in somehow into my life. But we saw that once we began to pray, once we began to pray, that we would see God's work around us. See, we're called to love. And what happens when we don't love God with all that we have, when we don't love each other, when we don't love the world, what is the hope for us then? Point three, the recovery of a genuine church. What do we do to recover this? to regain it, or maybe gain it for the first time. The passage has a number of imperatives here, things that it tells us to do, and let me kind of sum those up in three. Jesus here tells us to revive, remember, and repent. To revive, remember, and repent. And as we look at each of these three things, let's apply them to one of those three areas of love. Let's, let's take them and, and run this area of love for the world around us in mission. Let's, let's run that through this grid here of Revive, remember, and repent. Verse 2, revive. He says, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. Better translation of wake up would really be something like this be watchful. And that would have um, resonated for the people in Sardis because in their city, it was renowned from ancient times as being a nearly impregnable city. It was perched up on this craggy mountain. It was, you know, a hundreds of feet up in the air there was a, a gate that guarded the entrance into the city and the back side of the city was this sheer cliff coming down again hundreds of feet protecting them from the valley below and so the people over time gradually uh had this sense of you know we're we're never going to be taken and twice in ancient history prior to this time they actually were taken by besieging armies that sent a handful of guys around the back of the mountain where nobody was watching who slowly and arduously climbed up this cliff face, snuck into the city and opened the gates that the armies might come in. They were a city that had lost its watchfulness. So when Jesus says to Sardis, be watchful, they would have known what he meant. Uh, Tim Keller, in a sermon on this passage, said this. Every church is always in one of three places, Every church is always either asleep or falling asleep or having just been roused again. That our tendency as a church is to always be falling asleep. And so we must always be hearing this warning, this call that comes out to us. Wake up, be watchful, strengthen what remains, or else you might die too. So, what does it mean for us to wake up and be watchful? Where is God at work in Williamsburg and calling us to be a part of what he wants to do here in this city? Where are those places? You know, you thought you moved here uh, for a few years just to get an education and a degree from William and Mary. You thought you moved here for a nice place to retire and a choice of good golf courses. You thought you moved here for a good place to raise your kid and a slower pace of life. Or you thought you moved here simply because the Army or Navy or Air Force or Coast Guard powers that be, they reassigned you here, and that's why you're here. But Jesus tells us, wake up and be watchful. God is, work, God is at work doing much more than all that. See, He cares about your education and your retirement, He cares about your family life. But all of this is in service to Him, and everywhere He calls, He calls us to be His witnesses, to be ready to share the hope that we have in Christ. Where he calls us to have our eyes open and our prayers focused on sharing the goodness of Jesus with people here in Williamsburg, at William and Mary, in our neighborhoods, in Newport News, in Yorktown, and all the areas around here. Around here. And you see, watchful uh, followers of Jesus are those who are vigilant and serious about what it means to love the world, to love the lost like Jesus did. Jesus loved the lost joyfully, but seriously and with vigilance. So much so it brought him to the cross. And watchful followers of Jesus have a godly discontentment when they don't see opportunities to take the treasure that they've been given in Jesus and show it to their neighbors, their co-workers, to the other parents in their children's class when they are not experiencing the mission of God. So he tells us to to wake up, to be strengthened, to awaken what remains and is about to die. And maybe you're thinking, look, my faith just isn't strong enough to share with somebody else. Maybe if God ever gives me more faith, I'll be in a place to share the love of Jesus with others. Or maybe uh, at some point in life when I have more free time, or when my kids are a little bit older and don't take up so much of my attention, or when I'm not traveling so much, but maybe you've gotten it wrong. Maybe sometimes I get it wrong. Maybe the way to strengthen what remains and is about to die isn't to step back until you so hopefully someday have more faith, but to step forward and share what you do have in Jesus. Trust Jesus and watch him take the mustard seed of your faith and grow it into a tree that gives shade and rest to the people of Williamsburg around us, that through us they might come to know Jesus for themselves. Because maybe this, maybe weak faith like weak muscles Needs to be exercised rather than pampered. He says to revive. Secondly, verse 3, he says to remember. Remember what you have received and heard and keep it. To each of these letters, in each of them, he brings us back to this gospel picture, this gospel hope that is our fuel. When he talks in previous letters about Jesus being the true manna that we are given, the, the name on the white stone. In each of these, he brings in these images to show us the goodness and beauty of Christ that is to be the thing that upholds us. So what images get emphasized in this letter? What have we heard and received, and what are we called to keep? Well, first, simply the gospel. Verse 5 talks about the the one who conquers being clothed in white garments. Verse 4, it says, these people will walk with Christ. It says they will be worthy to walk with him. What kind of worthiness is he talking about? Not the worthiness of, you have finally done it right, you've kept your life good and clean, and now you can walk with Jesus. Instead, the worthiness that comes to Christ and says, I must find my worthiness in you. I must find my cleanness in you. He uses this image, this picture, of people dressed in this spotless white. Well, later on in Revelation in chapter 7, he says, those who have these white robes are those that have come and washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, who have been forgiven, who have been healed. They are the ones... Who, walk, who will walk with him in white. And Jesus says to those who do that, he says, I will confess your name before the Father. And we have to hear that when Jesus speaks this to the church in Sardis, he is speaking this to us too. He says, what is the strength that is going to give you to revive and to repent, to remember? What is it going to be? It is simply this, that we hold on to the fact that these truths are spoken over us. What do we have to share with others? The very thing we remember ourselves, that we have been washed in white. That we once were far off. We once were on Uh, The wrong side of God. And we were brought home by Him. That we were given life by Jesus. That we were washed clean. That we might know Him and walk with Him. The only hope that we have to offer others is the hope that we must hang on to all the time ourselves. That we are clothed in white too. We've been washed clean by Jesus. It is there that we get this new suit of clothes no longer soiled. It is good news. For the soiled and the dirty, it's good news for us. And it is the good news that everyone you and I know needs to hear. So he says, first of all, what are you to remember? The gospel that comes and brings us this kind of real and true cleansing. The second thing he says in this particular passage, the second thing he points us to, that we are to remember is simply this, that we have been given not only the message of salvation, but the agent of salvation, the one who brings it and applies it to our hearts, that we have been given the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Where is that? Look in verse 1. He says, he speaks of this image of the seven, of the seven uh, spirits of God. And another way to translate, the sevenfold spirit of God, this is a picture of the Holy Spirit. Why seven? Well, because in scripture, and you see it in sharp uh, relief in Revelation, seven is a number of completeness. You notice he's sending this letter to seven churches to represent the church, the universal church. And he says, for each of these seven churches who badly need God's presence, the seven spirits, the sevenfold spirit, the Holy Spirit that perfectly matches their need. He reminds us of the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. That the Holy Spirit is the one that comes and drives the message of the gospel home to our hearts. He is the one that comes and turns hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. He is the one who comes and does what we cannot do in our own power. commentator put it this way, Once individual disciples and congregations no longer live in the power of Jesus' spirit, the forms may retain, but the inner reality will be gone. And we find ourselves attempting for God only what our human resources will allow. We no longer push ourselves out into the deep water where we are beyond our own resources. We settle for being comfortable and safe. And like the disciples in Sardis, we are no longer able to distinguish between the peace of well-being and the peace of death. Christianity is a supernatural life that requires supernatural resources. What resource has God given us to be a part of this mission to the world, to which he's called us, this love for the world around us? What is the resource he's given us? He's given us the message of the gospel and the person of the Holy Spirit to bring it alive, the one who has the power to actually change hearts. A number of years ago, when I first came on staff as the campus minister at William & Mary with RUF, one of the things that so struck me in our training was this, that... It was hammered into us time and again that your presupposition when you step onto campus needs to be this God is at work here. Well, before you ever showed up, God is at work. His Holy Spirit is here, and He will do His work. And He calls us to be a part of it. He says to revive and remember. And then He says to repent, just briefly. Last week, Reformation Sunday, we talked about Martin Luther and the 95 Theses. The very first of those theses that Luther nailed up on the door in Wittenberg was this, that all of life is repentance. That all of life, repentance is not simply turning to Christ once when you come to faith, but we live a life where we are continually turning from our sin and turning to Him, to His grace, to His fullness. The way one author put it, because of grace, we can begin again. And again, God's grace at work, us grabbing onto that by repentance as we turn to him. So what does that mean for us in loving the world? God, we have failed to love the world, failed to love our neighbors, failed to love your mission. Forgive us, turn us around, and put feet to our repentance. And we get to know our city. Pray for eyes that are open to what God is doing. Pray for opportunities and courage. It says, what do we do to renew and revive, to make us again a genuine church, that we're to revive, we're to remember, and we're to repent? Okay, let me just conclude with this. What do we get when we do that? Revive, remember, repent. What do we do when we turn with our eyes on Christ, when we look to him, asking him, To make us more and more the genuine the real thing real Christians in a real church let's go back to Kevin and his dinner napkin for a minute so Kevin found out that this uh, authentication board for the Andy Warhol Foundation, it only meets three times a year it was going to meet in October which was coming up so he sent this to the foundation so that when the board met they could look at it and evaluate it Uh, and October came and went and he didn't hear anything and November basically came and went. Didn't hear anything. So he's passing through New York City, the end of November, and he stopped by the offices <clears throat> to pick up uh, his, um, you know, this napkin. He picked it up. Didn't hear anything. The next day, he gets uh, a letter at his house from the Andy Warhol Foundation, and it's, it's got the evaluation, the verdict. The answer that was going to determine whether or not he had the $20,000 genuine Warhol piece of art or a $50 napkin and a nice story. So he opens the letter, he takes it out, and he begins to read. And you know, that's like the church listening to hear the verdict of God, like us listening to hear about the reality of our church is it genuine or lacking? Is it genuine or is it dead or dying or really, really sleepy? What's true of us? What will be true of us? Jesus in verse 6 says this, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father God, we do pray that you would make us genuine and real throughout that you would open our hearts in love love towards you and love towards each other and love towards this world you would meet us in our failures that you would lavish your grace on us that we would see the beauty of it that we might be courageous to turn from our sin to turn from the ways in which we fall short and know that we fall short as forgiven children who are in your hand and so we can have the strength to stand back up again because you are with us and this is about what you are doing Lord, fill us with the hope of the gospel, with the presence of your spirit. And would you fill us with love? We ask this in the name of our Lord, the one who sends the letters to us too. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.